Chapter Twenty Eight of Gone to Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gone to Earth by Mary Webb. Chapter Twenty Eight. It was the Friday after Hazel's coming, and Reddin was away, much against his will, at a horse fair. He was quite surprised at the hurt it gave him to be away from Hazel. So far he had never been, in the smallest sense, any woman's lover. He had taken what he wanted of them in a kind of animal self-consciousness that amounted to a stark innocence. Virility, he felt, was not of his seeking. There it was, and it must be satisfied. Now he was annoyed to find that he felt guilty when he remembered these women, and that he wanted Hazel, not as with them occasionally, but all the time. He had been accustomed to say at farmers' dinners, after indulging pretty freely, "'Oh, damn it, what do you want with women between sun-up and sun-down?' His coarseness had been received with laughter and reproof. Now he felt that the reproof was juster than the laughter. It was curious, too, how dull things became when Hazel was not there. Hazel had something fresh to say about everything, and their quarrels were the most invigorating moments he had ever known. Hazel was primitive enough to be feminine, original enough to be boyish, and mysterious enough to be exciting. As Vesson's remarked to the drake, "'Oh, maester, you ne'er saw the like. It's Hazel, 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 the day long, and a good man spoilt. It was only partly spoilt before.' Vesson's and Hazel were spending the afternoon quarrelling about the bees. When Reddin was away, Hazel put off her new dignity and was Vesson's equal, because it was so dull to be anything else. Vesson's tolerated her presence for the sake of the sub-acid remarks it enabled him to make, but chiefly because of the sardonic pleasure it gave him to remember how soon his resolve would be put into action. They were in the walled garden, and the bees were coming and going so fast that they made, when Hazel half-closed her eyes, long black threads swaying between the hive-doors and the distant fields in the hilltop. They hung in cones on the low front walls, and lumped on the hive-shelves, in that apparently purposeless unrest that precedes creation. But whether they intended, any of them, to create a new city that day, none might know. Vesson's said not. Hazel, always for adventure, said they would, and said also that she could hear the queen in one hive zeep-zeeping, that strange music which, like the maddeningly soft skirl of bagpipes, or the fiddling of Ned Pugh, has power to lure living creatures away from comfort and full hives into the unknown, so darkly sweet. "'I canna hear it,' said Vesson's, obstinately. "'Go on, you're deaf, Mr. Vesson's.' "'Deaf, am I? Maybe I hear as much as I want to, and more.' Ah, that I do. Well, then, why canna you hear em? Listen at em now. Do you know the noise I mean? Do I know the noise? Besson's voice grew almost tearful with rage. Do I know? Me, as can make a thousand bees go through the neck of a pint bottle each after other, like cows to the milking. Me, maybe you'd like to learn me beekeeping, he continued with salty humility. Maybe you would. "'Never will I.' 
he began to tear off the top of the hives. "'Oh, Mr. Vessons, dinna be so cross!' Hazel was afraid there would be another scene like Monday's. "'You take em off very neat,' she added, with a pathetic attempt to be tactful. "'As neat as my dad!' "'I'd have you know,' said Vessons, "'as I take em off neater. Ah, a deal neater. "'Bees and cows and yew-tree swans,' he went on reflectively. "'I can manage better than any married man, "'for what he puts into matrimony I put into my work. "'Now, I ask you,' He fixed his eyes on her with the expression of a fanatic. I ask you, was there ever a beekeeper or a general or a sea captain as was anything to boast of being married? Never. Marriage kills the mind. Why is bees clever? Why is the skip allus full of honey at summer's end? Because they're all old maids. The queen in her, they all come from her. Vessons glared for a moment, then, realising defeat, turned on his heel and went to feed the calves. He had an ingenious way of getting the calves in. He had no dog, it was one of his dreams to have one, but he managed very well. First he opened the calfskit door, then he loosed the pigs. Then he fetched a bucket and went to the field where the calves were, followed by a turbulent, squealing, ferocious crowd of pigs. He walked round the calves, and the calves fled homewards, far more afraid of the pigs than of a dog. This piece of farm economy pleased Vessons, and, peace being restored, they laid tea amicably. When Reddin came home to a pleasant scent of toast, and the sight of Hazel's shining braids of hair, new-brushed and piled high on her head, he felt very well pleased with himself. He stretched in the red armchair and flung an arm round her. His hard blue eyes, his hard mouth, smiled. He felt that he could make a success of marriage, though the parson, as he called Edward, could not. Women, he reflected, were quite easy to manage. Just show them who's master straight off and all's well. Here was Hazel, radiant, soft, submissive, all the rough prickly husk gone since Sunday. Why had he behaved so strangely in the spinney? Well, well, he must forget about that. The hot tea ran very comfortably down his throat. The toast was pleasantly resistant to his strong teeth. He felt satisfied with life. Later on, no doubt, Hazel would have a child. That, too, would be a good thing. Two possessions were better than one, and he could well afford children. It never occurred to him to wonder whether Hazel would like it, or to be sorry for the pain in store for her. He felt very unselfish, as he thought, When she can't go about, I'll sit with her now and again. It really was a good deal for him to say he'd never taken the slightest notice of Sally Haggard at such times. "'Got something for you,' he said, pulling at his pocket. "'Oh, it's an urchin!' cried Hazel delightedly. Reddin began bruising and pulling at its spines with his gloved hands. "'Dunna!' cried Hazel. Reddin pulled and wrenched until at last the hedgehog screamed, a thin, piercing wail, most ghastly and pitiful and old, ancient as the cry of the death's head moth, that faint, ghostly shriek as of a tortured witch. 
Centuries of pain were in it, the age-long terror of weakness bound and helpless beneath the knife. And that something vindictive and terrifying that looks up at the hunter from the eyes of trapped animals and sends the cuckoo fleeing in panic before the onset of little birds. Hazel knew the sound well. It was the watchword of the little children of despair, the password of the Freemasonry to which she belonged. Before the cry had ceased to horrify the quiet room, she had flung herself at Reddin, a pattern of womanly obedience no longer, but a desperate creature, fighting in that most intoxicating of all crusades, the succouring of weakness. On Reddin's head a moment ago so smooth, on his face a moment ago so bland, rained the blows of Hazel's hard little fists. Her blows were by no means so negligible as most women's, for her hands were muscular and strong from digging and climbing, and in her heart was the root of pity which nerves the most trembling hands to do mighty deeds. "'What the devil!' spluttered Reddin. "'Here, stop it, you little vixen!' He caught one of her hands, but the other was too quick for him. "'Give over tormenting of it, then!' The hedgehog rolled on the floor, and the foxhound came and sniffed it. Reddin had her other hand now. "'What do you mean by it?' he asked, very angry and tingling about the ears. "'Leave it be. It's done you no harm. Lucky, the hang-dog!' she cried. "'Drive him off!' "'I'm going to have some fun seeing the dog kill it.' Hazel went quite white. "'You shanna, not till I'm dead,' she said. "'It's come to me to be took care of, and took care of it shall be.' She reached a foot out and kicked the hound. Reddin's mood changed. He burst out laughing. "'You're a slight more amusing than hedgehogs,' he said. "'The beast can go free for all I care.' He pulled her on to his knee and kissed her. "'Send the hound-dog out, then.' When the hound had gone resentfully, the hedgehog a sphinx-like protestant ball enjoyed the peace and hazel became again as reddin thought quite the right sort of girl to live with during the uproar they had not heard wheels in the drive so they were startled by vezin's intrigue insertion of himself into a small opening of the door his firm shutting of it as if in face of a beleaguering host and his stentorian whisper is clombers now as if to say, when you let a woman in, you never know what'll become of it. Tell him I'm ill, dead, said his master. Tell him I'm in the bath, anything, only send them away. They heard Vesson's recitative. The master's very sorry, mum, but he's got the colic, too bad to see you. It's heave, curse, heave, curse, till I pray for a good vomit. The clombers, urgent upon his track, shouldered past and strode in. "'What the devil do they want?' muttered Reddin. He rose sulkily. "'I hear,' said the eldest Miss Clomber, who had read Bordello and was very clever, "'that young Lochinvar has taken to himself a bride.' This was quite up to her usual standard, for not only had it the true literary flavour, but it was ironic.' for she knew who Hazel was. "'Er,' uh, queried Reddin, shaking hands in his rather race-course manner. "'Introduce me, Mr. Reddin,' simpered Amelia Clomber. It was painful when she simpered. 
her mouth was made for sterner uses. They surveyed Hazel, who shrank from their gaze. Something in their eyes made her feel as if they were her judges, and as if they knew all about Hunter Spinney. They looked at her with detestation. They thought it was detestation for a sinner. Really, it was for the woman who had, in a few weeks after meeting him, found favour in Reddin's eyes, and attained that defeat which, to women ever so desiccated as the clombers, is the one desired victory. They had come, as they told each other before and after their visit, to snatch a brand from the burning. What was in the heart of each, the frantic desire to be mistress of Undern, they did not mention. Miss Clomber had taken exception to Amelia's tight dress, for Amelia had a figure, and Miss Clomber had not. She always flushed at the text, We have a little sister, and she hath no breasts. Amelia was aware of her advantage as she engaged Redden in conversation. He fell in with the arrangement, for he detested her sister, who always prefaced every remark with, Have you read? As he never read anything, he thought she was making fun of him. And what, asked Miss Clomber of Hazel, lowering her lids like blinds, was your maiden name? Woodus. Where were you married? The mountain? Surely there's no church there. Ah, Edward's church. Edward? Ah, he's minister. You mean the chapel. So that's your persuasion. Now, Mr. Reddin is such a staunch churchman. Reddin looked exceedingly discomforted. And when did this happy event take place? A cat with a mouse was nothing to Miss Clomber with a sinner. At this point, Reddin saw, as he put it, what she was driving at. He was very sleepy, having been out all day and eaten a large tea, and he never combated a physical desire. So he cut across a remark of Amelia's to the effect that marriage with the right woman so added to a man's comfort, and said, I'm not married, if that's what you mean. Then who, said Miss Clomber, feeling that she had him now, my keep, he said boldly. He thought they would go at that, but they sat tight. They had, as Miss Clomber said afterwards, a soul to save. They both realised how pleasant might be the earthly lot of one engaged in this heavenly occupation. Ha! Ah, you call a spade a spade, Mr. Reddin, said Miss Clomber, with a frosty glance at Hazel. You are not, as our dear Browning has it, mealy-mouthed. In the breast of a true woman said Amelia authoritatively, as a fishmonger might speak of fish, is no room for blame. True woman be damned. Miss Clomber saw that for to-day the cause was lost. At this point Miss Amelia uttered a piercing yell. The hedgehog, encouraged by being left to itself and by the slight dusk that had begun to gather in the northerly room of London, where night came early, had begun to creep about. Surreptitiously, guided by Hazel's foot, it had crept under Amelia's skirt and laid its cold inquiring head on her ankle, thinly clad for conquest. Hazel went off into 
peals of laughter, and Miss Amelia hated her more than before. Vesons in the kitchen shook his head. I never heard the like of the noise there's been since that gal came. Never did I, he said. Leave him, said Miss Clomber to Hazel on the doorstep. She was going to add for my sake, but substituted his. You are causing him to sin, she added. Be I? Hazel felt that she was always causing something wrong. Then she sighed. I canna leave him. Why not? He wanna let me. With that phrase, all unconsciously, she took a most ample revenge on the clombers, for it rang in their ears all night, and they knew it was true. End of chapter 28 Recording by Rachel Linton, Bristol, UK